This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This week I have something a bit different. Normally on a Saturday I upload a recording of a papal document, like an encyclical or a papal bull or whatnot. But sometimes I deviate from that formula, like I am today. This video was requested by a subscriber, and it was a good suggestion. The document in question is the Ottaviani Intervention, a document that had minimal effect upon its release. What was it? A critical study and attempted intervention by a faithful Cardinal Archbishop and his committee of theologians to correct the errors of the Novus Ordo Missae before it was released, and to preserve access to the traditional Latin Mass. If you are one of those who don't understand the traditionalist critique of the Novus Ordo, this is the best response that can be provided. It comes straight from a faithful Cardinal Archbishop and father of the Second Vatican Council. And if you know anything about Cardinal Odoviani, you know he received some horrifying treatment at the Council. But his loyalty to the Church has never been called into question. Anyway, here is the full document. I look forward to reading your comments. The Ottoviani Intervention a Critical Study of the New Mass. Letter from Cardinals Ottoviani and Bacci to His Holiness Pope Paul VI, dated September 25, 1969. Most Holy Father, having carefully examined and presented for the scrutiny of others the Novus Ordo Missae prepared by the experts of the Concilium ad Exequandum Constitutionum de Sacra Liturgia, and after lengthy prayer and reflection, we feel it to be our bounden duty in the sight of God and towards your holiness to put before you the following considerations. 1. The accompanying critical study of the Novus Ordo Missae, the work of a group of theologians, liturgists, and pastors of souls, shows quite clearly, in spite of its brevity, that if we consider the innovations implied or taken for granted, which may of course be evaluated in many different ways, the Novus Ordo represents, both as a whole and in its details, a striking departure from the Catholic theology of the Mass as it was formulated in Session 22 of the Council of Trent. The canons of the rite definitively fixed at that time provided an insurmountable barrier to any heresy directed against the integrity of the mystery. 2. The pastoral reasons adduced to support such a grave break with tradition even if such reasons could be regarded as holding good in the face of doctrinal considerations, do not seem to us sufficient. The innovations in the Novus Ordo and the fact that all of that is of perennial value finds only a minor place, if it subsists at all, could well turn into a certainty the suspicions already prevalent, alas, in many circles, that truths which have always been believed by the Christian people can be changed or ignored without infidelity to that sacred deposit of doctrine to which the Catholic faith is bound forever. Recent reforms have amply demonstrated that fresh changes in the liturgy could lead to nothing but complete bewilderment on the part of the faithful, who are already showing signs of restiveness and an indubitable lessening of faith. 
Among the best of the clergy, the practical result is an agonizing crisis of conscience of which innumerable instances come to our notice daily. 3. We are certain that these considerations, which can only reach your holiness by the living voice of both shepherds and flock, cannot but find an echo in your paternal heart, always so profoundly solicitous for the spiritual needs of the children of the church. It has always been the case that when a law meant for the good of subjects proves to be on the contrary harmful, those subjects have the right, nay, the duty of asking with filial trust for the abrogation of that law. Therefore, we most earnestly beseech your holiness at a time of such painful divisions and ever-increasing perils for the purity of the faith and the unity of the church lamented by, your, by you, our common father, not to deprive us of the possibility of continuing to have recourse to the faithful integrity of that Missale Romanum of St. Pius V, so high, highly praised by your holiness and so deeply loved and venerated by the whole Catholic world. Signed, Cardinal Ottoviani and Cardinal Bacci. Chapter 1, History of the Change. In October 1967, the Episcopal Synod called in Rome was required to pass judgment on the experimental celebration of a so-called normative mass, or new mass, devised by the Concilium at Exequandum Constantianum de Sacra Liturgia. This mass aroused the most serious misgivings. The voting showed considerable opposition, very many substantial reservations, and four abstentions out of 187 voters. The international press spoke of a refusal of the proposed normative mass or new mass on the part of the synod. Progressively inclined papers made no mention of it. In the Novus Ordo Missae lately promulgated by the Apostolic Constitutium Missale Romanum, we once again find this normative mass or new mass identical in substance, nor does it appear that in the intervening period the Episcopal Conference, at least as such, were ever asked to give their views about it. In the Apostolic Constitution, it is stated that the ancient missal promulgated by St. Pius V, 13th July 1570, but going back in great part to St. Gregory the Great and still remoter antiquity, was for four centuries the norm of the celebration of the Holy Sacrifice for priests of the Latin Rite. And that, taken to every part of the world, it has moreover been an abundant source of spiritual nourishment to many holy people in their devotion to God. Yet the present reform, putting it def definitely out of use, was claimed to be necessary since from that time the study of the sacred liturgy has become more widespread and intensive among Christians. This assertion seems to us to embody a serious equivocation, for the desire of the people was expressed, if at all, when, thanks to Pius X, they began to discover the true and everlasting treasures of the liturgy. The people never on any account asked for the liturgy to be changed, or mutilated so as to understand it better. They asked for a better understanding of the changeless liturgy, and one which they would never have wanted changed. The Roman Missal of St. Pius V was religiously venerated and most dear to Catholics, both, both priests and laity. One fails to see how its use, together with suitable catechesis, could have hindered a fuller participation in and greater knowledge of the sacred liturgy, nor why, when its many outstanding virtues are recognized, this should not have been considered worthy to continue to foster the liturgical piety of Christians. Rejected by the Synod Since the normative Mass, or New Mass, now reintroduced and imposed as the Novus Ordo Missae, New Order of the Mass, was in substance rejected by the Synod of Bishops, was never submitted to the collegial judgment of the Episcopal Conferences, nor have the people, 
least of all in mission lands, ever asked for any reform of the Holy Mass whatsoever, one fails to comprehend the motives behind the new legislation, which overthrows a tradition unchanged in the Church since the 4th and 5th centuries, as the Apostolic Constitution itself acknowledges. As no popular demand exists to support this reform, it appears devoid of any logical grounds to justify it, and makes it acceptable to the Catholic people. The Vatican Council did indeed express a desire, paragraph 50 Constitution of Sacrosanctium Concilium, for the various parts of the Mass to be revised in a way that will bring out more clearly the intrinsic nature and purpose of its several parts, as also the connection between them. We shall see how the order recently promulgated corresponds with this original intention. An attentive examination of the Novus Order reveals changes of such magnitude as to justify in themselves the judgment already made with regard to the normative Mass. Both have in many points every possibility of satisfying the most modernists of Protestants. Chapter 2. Definition of the Mass Let us begin with the definition of the Mass given in number 7 of Institutio Generalis at the beginning of the second chapter of the Novus Ordo, De Structura Missae. Quote, the Lord's Supper or Mass is a sacred meeting or assembly of the people of God, met together under the presidency of the priest to celebrate the memorial of the Lord. Thus the promise of Christ, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them, is eminently true of the local community in the church. See Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. The definition of the Mass is thus limited to that of the Supper, and this term is found constantly repeated. The Supper is further characterized as an assembly presided over by the priest and held as a memorial of the Lord, recalling what he did on the first Maundy Thursday. None of this is, in the very least implies either the real presence or the reality of the sacrifice, or the sacramental function of the consecrating priest, or the intrinsic value of the Eucharistic sacrifice independently of the people's presence. It does not, in a word, imply any of the essential dogmatic values of the Mass, which together provide its true definition. Here, the deliberate omission of these dogmatic values amounts to their having been superseded, and therefore, at least in practice, to their denial. In the second part of this paragraph, it is asserted, aggravating the already serious equivocation, that there holds good eminently for this assembly Christ's promise that, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. This promise, which refers only to the spiritual presence of Christ with his grace, is thus put on the same qualitative plane save for the greater intensity, as the substantial and physical reality of the sacramental Eucharistic presence. In number 8, a subdivision of the Mass into Liturgy of the Word and Eucharistic Liturgy immediately follows, with the affirmation that in the Mass is made ready the table of the God's Word, as the body of Christ, so that the faithful may be built up and refreshed, an altogether improper assimilation of the two parts of the liturgy, as though between two points of equal symbol value, more will be said about this point later. The Mass is designed by a great many different expressions, all acceptable relatively, all unacceptable if employed, as they are separately in an absolute sense. We cite a few. The action of the people of God, the Lord's Supper or Mass, the Paschal Banquet, the common participation of the Lord's Table, the Eucharistic Prayer, the Liturgy of the Word, and the Eucharistic Liturgy. As is only too evident, the emphasis is obsessively placed upon the Supper and the Memorial instead of upon, upon the unbloody renewal of the sacrifice of Calvary. The formula, the memorial of the Passion and Resurrection of the Lord, besides, is inexact, the Mass being the memorial of the sacrifice alone, in itself redemptive, while the re resurrection is the consequent fruit of it. We shall later see how, in the very consecratory formula, 
and throughout the Novus Ordo, such equivocations are renewed and reiterated. Chapter 3. Presentation of the Ends We now turn to the ends or purposes of the Mass, what it accomplishes in the supernatural order. 1. Ultimate Purpose The ultimate purpose of the Mass is the sacrifice of praise rendered to the Most Holy Trinity. This end conforms to the primary purpose of the Incarnation, explicitly enunciated by Christ himself. Coming into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and oblation thou wouldst not, but a, but, but a body thou hast fitted me. In the Novus Order, this purpose has disappeared. From the offertory where the prayer receive Holy Trinity, this oblation has been removed. From the conclusion of Mass, where the prayer honoring the Trinity, may the tribute of my homage, Most Holy Trinity, has been eliminated. From the preface, since the preface of the Most Holy Trinity, formerly used on all ordinary Sundays, will henceforth be used only on the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity. 2. Ordinary Purpose The ordinary purpose of the Mass is propitiatory sacrifice, making sacrifice to God for sin. This end, too, has been compromised. Instead of emphasizing remission for sins for the living and the dead, the new rite stresses the nourishment and sanctification of those present. At the Last Supper, Christ instituted the Blessed Sacrament, and thus placed himself in it as a victim, in order to unite himself to us as victim. But this act of sacrificial immolation occurs before the Blessed Sacrament is consumed and possesses beforehand full redemptive value in relation to the bloody sacrifice on Calvary. The proof for this is that people who assist are not bound to receive communion sacramentally. 3. Imminent Purpose The imminent purpose of the Mass is fundamentally that of sacrifice. It, essential, it is essential that the sacrifice, whatever its nature, be, be pleasing to God and accepted by Him. Because of original sin, however, no sacrifice other than the Christ's sacrifice can claim to be acceptable and pleasing to God in its own right. The Novus Ordo alters the nature of this sacrificial offering by turning it into a type of exchange of gifts between God and man. Man brings the bread and God turns it into the bread of life. Man brings the wine and God turns it into spiritual drink. Blessed are you, Lord of all, God of all creation, for through your goodness we have this bread or wine to offer, fruit of the earth or vine and work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life or spiritual drink. The expression bread of life and spiritual drink, of course, are utterly vague and could mean anything. Once again, we come up against the same basic equivocation. According to the new definition of the Mass, Christ is only spiritually present among his own. Here, bread and wine are only spiritually and not substantially changed. In the preparation of the gifts, a similar equivocal game was played. The old offertory contained two magnificent prayers, the Deus Quihumane and the Offeramus Tibi. The first prayer, recited at the preparation of the chalice, begins, O God, by whom the dignity of human nature was wondrously established, and yet more wondrously restored. It recalled man's innocence before the fall of Adam and his ransom by the blood of Christ, and it summed up the whole economy of the sacrifice from Adam to the present day. The second prayer, which accompanies the offering of the chalice, embodies the idea of propitiation for sin, and implores God for his mercy as it asks that the offering may ascend with a sweet fragrance in the presence of thy, of thy divine majesty. Like the first prayer, it admirably stresses the economy of the sacrifice. In the Novus Ordo, both these prayers have been eliminated. In the Eucharistic prayers, moreover, the repeated petition to God that he accept the sacrifice have also been suppressed. Thus, there is no longer any clear distinction between divine and human sacrifice. Having removed the keystone, the reformers had to put up the scaffolding. Having suppressed the real purposes of the Mass, they have to substitute the fictitious purposes of their own. This forced them to introduce actions stressing the union between priest and faithful or among the faithful themselves. 
and led to the ridiculous attempt to superimpose offerings for the poor and for the church on the offering of the host to be immolated. The fundamental uniqueness of the victim to be sacrificed will thus be completely obliterated. Participation in the immolation of Christ the victim will turn into a philanthropist's meeting or a charity banquet. Chapter 4. The Essence We now consider the essence of the sacrifice. The new order of Mass no longer explicitly expresses the mystery of the cross. It is obscured, veiled, imperceptible to the faithful. Here are some of the main reasons. 1. The meaning of the term Eucharistic prayer. The meaning the Novus Ordo assigns to the so-called Eucharistic prayers as follows. The congregation joins itself to Christ in acknowledging the great things God has done and in offering the sacrifice. Which sacrifice does this refer to? Who offers the sacrifice? No answer is given to these questions. The definition the instruction provides for the Eucharistic prayer reduces it to the following. The center and summit of the entire celebration begins. Eucharistic prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving and sanctification. The effects of the prayer thus replace the causes, and of the causes, moreover, not a single word is said. The explicit mention of the purpose of the sacrificial offering, made in the old rite with the prayer, Receive, Most Holy Trinity, this oblation, has been suppressed, and replaced with nothing. The changes in the formula reveals the changes in doctrine. 2. Obliteration of the role of the real presence. The reason why the sacrifice is no longer explicitly mentioned is simple. The central role of the real presence has been suppressed. It has been removed from the place it so resplendently occupied in the old liturgy. In the general instruction, the real presence is mentioned just once, and that in the footnote, which is the only reference to the Council of Trent. Here again, the context is that of nourishment. The real and permanent presence of Christ in the transubstantiated species, body, blood, soul, and divinity, is never alluded to. The very word transubstantiation is completely ignored. The invocation of the Holy Ghost in the offertory. The prayer, Come Thou Sanctifier, has likewise been suppressed, with its petition that he descend upon the real offering to accomplish the miracle of the divine presence again, just as he once descended into the virgin's womb. This suppression is one more in a series of denials and degradation of the real presence, both tacit and systematic. Finally, it is impossible to ignore how ritual gestures and usages expressing faith in the real presence have been abolished or changed. The Novus Ordo eliminates genuflection. No more than three remain for the priest, and with certain exceptions, one, of the one for the faithful at the moment of the consecration. Purification of the priest's fingers over the chalice. Preserving the priest's fingers from all profane contact after the consecration. Purification of sacred vessels, which need not be done immediately nor made on the corporeal. Protecting the contents of the chalice with the pall. Gilding for the interior of sacred vessels. Solemn consecration for movable altars. Consecrated stones and relics of the saints in the movable altar or on the table when Mass is celebrated outside a sacred place. The latter leads straight to Eucharistic dinners in private houses. Three cloths on the altar, reduced to one. Thanksgiving for the Eucharist made kneeling, now replaced by the grotesque practice of the priest and people sitting to make their thanksgiving, a logical enough accompaniment to receive communion standing. All the ancient prescriptions observed in the case of a host which fell, which are now reduced to a single, nearly sarcastic direction, it is to be picked up reverently. All these suppressions only emphasize how outrageously faith in the dogma of the real presence is implicitly repudiated. 3. The Role of the Main Altar The altar is nearly always called the table, the altar of the Lord's table, which is the center of the whole Eucharistic liturgy. 
The altar must now be detached from the back wall so that the priest can walk around it and celebrate Mass facing the people. The instruction states that the altar should be at the center of the assembled faithful, so that their attention is spontaneously drawn to it. Comparing this article with another, however, seems to exclude outright the reservation of the Blessed Sacrament on the altar where Mass is celebrated. This will signal an irreparable dichotomy between the presence of Christ the High Priest in the priest celebrating the Mass and Christ's sacramental presence. Before, they were one and the same. The instruction recommends that the Blessed Sacrament now be kept in a place apart for a private devotion, as though it were some sort of relic. Thus, on entering a church, one's attention will be drawn not to a tabernacle, but to a table stripped bare. Once again, private piety is set up against liturgical piety, an altar set up against altar. The instruction urges that hosts distributed for communion be ones consecrated at the same Mass. It recommends consecrating a large wafer, so that the priest can share a part of it with the faithful. It is always the same disparaging attitude towards both the tabernacle and every form of Eucharistic piety outside of Mass. This constitutes a new and violent blow to the faith that real presence continues as long as the consecrated species remain. 4. The Formulas for the Consecration The old formula for the consecration was a sacramental formula, properly speaking, and not merely a narrative. This was shown above by three things. 1. The text employed. The scripture text was not used word for word as a formula for the consecration in the Old Missal. St. Paul's expression, the mystery of faith, was inserted into the text as an immediate expression of the priest's faith in the mystery which the church makes real through the hierarchical priesthood. 2. Typography and punctuation. In the Old Missal, a period and a new paragraph separated the words, Take ye all this and eat, from the words of the sacramental form. This is my body. The period in the new paragraph marked the passage from a merely narrative mode to a sacramental and affirmative mode which is proper to a true sacramental action. The words of consecration in the Roman Missal, moreover, were printed in larger type in the center of the page. Often a different color ink was used. All these things clearly detached the words from a merely historical context and combined to give the formula of consecration a proper and autonomous value. 3. The Anamnesis the Roman Missal added the words, As often as ye shall do these things, ye shall do them in memory of me, after the formula of consecration. This formula referred not merely to remembering Christ or a past event, to, but to Christ acting in the here and now. It was an invitation to recall not merely his person or the Last Supper, but to do what he did in the way that he did it. In the Novus Ordo, the words of St. Paul, Do this in memory of me, will now replace the old formula and be daily proclaimed in the vernacular everywhere. This will inevitably cause hearers to concentrate on the remembrance of Christ as the end of the Eucharistic action, rather than as its beginning. The idea of commemoration will thus soon replace the idea of the Mass as a sacramental action. The general instruction emphasizes the narrative mode further when it describes the consecration as the institution narrative, and when it adds that in fulfillment of the command received from Christ... The church keeps this memorial. All this, in short, changes the modus significandi of the words of consecration, how they show forth the sacramental action taking place. The priest now pronounces the formulas for consecration as part of a historical narrative, rather than as Christ's representative issuing the affirmative judgment. This is the body. And furthermore, the people's memorial acclamation, which immediately follows the consecration. Your holy death we proclaim, O Lord, until you come, introduces the same ambiguity about the real presence under the guise of an allusion to the Last Judgment. 
Without so much as a pause, the people proclaim their expectation of Christ at the end of time, just as the moment when he is substantially present on the altar, as if Christ's real coming will occur only at the end of time rather than there on the altar itself. The second optional memorial acclamation brings this out even more strongly. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, Lord Jesus, until you come in glory. The juxtaposition of entirely different realities, immolation and eating, the real presence and Christ's second coming, brings ambiguity to a new height. Chapter 5. The Elements of the Sacrifice We now consider the question of who performs the sacrifice. In the old rite, these were, in order, Christ, the priest, the church, and the faithful. 1. The role of the faithful in the new rite. In the new mass, the role attributed to the faithful is autonomous, absolute, and hence completely false. This is obvious not only from the new definition of the mass, the sacred assembly or congregation of the people gathering together, but also from the general instructions observation that the priest's opening greeting is meant to convey to the assembled community the presence of the Lord. Then through his greeting, the priest declares to the assembled community that the Lord is present. This greeting and response expresses the mystery of the gathered church. Is this the true presence of Christ? Yes, but only a spiritual presence. A mystery of the church? Certainly, but only insofar as the assembly manifests and asks for Christ's presence. This new notion is stressed over and over again by obsessive references to the communal character of the Mass, the unheard distinction between Mass with a congregation and Mass without a congregation. The description of the prayer of the faithful as part of the Mass where the people exercising their priestly office intercede for all humanity. The faithful's priestly office is presented unequivocally, as if it were autonomous, by omitting to mention that it is subordinated to the priest, who, as a consecrated mediator, presents the people's petitions to God during the canon of the Mass. The Novus Ordo's Eucharistic Prayer 3 addresses the following prayers to the Lord. From age to age you gather a people to yourself, so that from east to west perfect offering may be made to the glory of your name. The so that in the passage makes it appear that the people, rather than the priest, are the indispensable element in the celebration. Since it is never made clear, even here, who offers the sacrifice, the people themselves appear as possessing autonomous priestly powers. From this step it would not be surprising if, before long, the people were permitted to join with the priest in pronouncing the words of consecration. Indeed, in some places this has already happened. 2. The Role of the Priest in the New Rite the role of the priest is minimized, changed, and falsified. In relation to the people, he is now a mere president or brother rather than the consecrated minister who celebrates Mass in the person of Christ. In relation to the church, the priest is now merely one member among others, someone taken from the people. In its treatment of the invocation of the Holy Ghost in the Eucharistic prayer, the Epiclesis, the general instruction attributes the petitions anonymously to the church. The priest's part has vanished. In the new penitential rite, which begins the Mass, the confidior has now become collective. Hence, the priest is no longer judge, witness, and intercessor before God. It is logical, therefore, that he no longer recites the prayer of absolution which followed it and has now been suppressed. The priest is now integrated with his brothers. Even the altar boy who serves at a Mass without a congregation calls the priest brother. Formerly, the priest's communion was ritually distinct from the people's communion. The Novus Ordo suppresses this important distinction. This was the moment when Christ, the eternal high priest, and the priest who, are, who acts in the person of Christ, came together in closest union and completed the sacrifice.
Not a word is said, moreover, about the priest's power as sacrificer, his consecratory action, or how as intermediary he brings about the Eucharistic presence. He now appears to be nothing more than a Protestant minister. By abolishing or rendering optional many of the priestly vestments, in some cases only an olive and stole are now required, the new rite obliterates the priest's conformity to Christ even more. The priest is no longer clothed with Christ's virtues. He is now a mere graduate, with one or two tokens that barely separates him from the crowd. A little more a man than the rest, to quote from a modern Dominican's unintentionally humorous definition. Here is when they set up an altar against altar, the reformers separated that which was united, the one priesthood of Christ from the word of God. 3. The role of the church in the new rite. Finally, there is the church's position in relation to Christ. In only one instance, in its treatment of the form of the Mass without a congregation, does the general instruction admit that the Mass is the action of Christ and the Church. In the case of Mass with a congregation, however, the only object the instruction hints at is it remembering Christ and sanctifying those present. The priest celebrant, it says, joins the people to himself in offering the sacrifice through Christ in the Spirit to the Father. Instead of saying that the people join themselves to Christ who offers himself through the Holy Ghost to the Father. In this context, the following points should likewise be noted. The many grave omissions of the phrase, through Christ our Lord, a formula which guarantees that God will hear the church's prayers in every age. An all-pervading paschalism, an obsessive emphasis on Easter and the resurrection, almost as if there was no other aspects of communication of grace, which, while quite different, are nevertheless equally important. The strange and dubious eschatologism of stress upon Christ's second coming and the end of time, whereby the permanent and eternal reality of the communication of grace is reduced to something within the bonds of time. We hear a people of God on the march, a pilgrim church, a church no longer militant against the powers of darkness, but one which, having lost its link with eternity, marches to a future envisioned in purely temporal terms. In Eucharistic Prayer for the Church, as one holy Catholic and apostolic is based, is abased by eliminating the Roman canon's petition for all Orthodox believers who keep the Catholic and apostolic faith. There are now merely all who seek you with a sincere heart. The memento of the dead in the canon, moreover, is offered not as before for those who are gone before us with the sign of faith, but merely for those who have died in the peace of Christ. To this group, with further detriment to the notion of Christ's unity and visibility, Eucharistic Prayer 4 adds the great crowd of all the dead whose faith is known to you alone. None of the three new Eucharistic prayers, moreover, alludes to a suffering state for those who have died. None allows the priest to make special mementos for the dead. All this necessarily undermines faith in the propitiatory and redemptive nature of the sacrifice. Everywhere desacralizing omissions debase the mystery of the Church. Above all, the Church's nature as a sacred hierarchy is disregarded. The second part of the new collective confidior reduces the angels and the saints to anonymity in the first part. In the person of St. Michael the Archangel, they have disappeared as witnesses and, and judges. The preface for Eucharistic Prayer 2, and this is unprecedented, the various angelic hierarchies have disappeared. Also suppressed in the third prayer of the old canon is the memory of the holy pontiffs and martyrs on whom the church in Rome was founded. Without a doubt, these were the saints who handed down the apostolic tradition, finally completed under Pope St. Gregory as the Roman Mass. The prayer after the Our Father, the Libra Nos, now suppresses the mention of the Blessed Virgin, the Holy Apostles, and all the saints. The intercession is thus no longer sought, even, if it, even in times of danger. 
Everywhere except in the Roman canon, the Novus Ordo eliminates not only the names of the apostles Peter and Paul, founders of the church in Rome, but also the names of the other apostles, the foundation and mark of the one and universal church. This intolerable omission, extending even to the three new Eucharistic prayers, compromises the unity of the church. The new order of the Mass further attacks the dogma of the communion of saints by suppressing the blessing and the salutation, the Lord be with you, when the priest says Mass without a server. It also eliminates the Ita Misa Est, even in Masses celebrated with a server. The double confidior at the beginning of the Mass showed how the priest, bested as Christ's minister and bowing profoundly, acknowledged himself unworthy of both his sublime mission and the tremendous mystery he was to enact. Then in the prayer, Take Away Our Sins, he acknowledged his unworthiness to enter holy, the Holy of Holies, recommending himself with the prayer, we beseech thee, O Lord, to the merits and intercessions of the martyrs whose relics were enclosed in the altar. Both prayers have been suppressed. What was said previously about elimination of the twofold confidior and communion rite is, is equally relevant here. The outward setting of the sacrifice, a sign of its sacred character, has been profaned. See, for example, the new provisions for celebrating Mass outside a church. A simple table, containing neither a consecrated altar stone nor relics, and covered with a single cloth, is allowed to suffice for an altar. Here, too, all we have said previously in regard to the real presence applies. Disassociation of the banquet and the sacrifice of the supper from the real presence itself. The process of desacralization is made complete, thanks to the new and grotesque procedure for the offertory procession, the reference to ordinary rather than unleavened bread, and allowing servers, and even lay people when receiving communion under both species, to handle sacred vessels. Then there is the distracting atmosphere created in the church, the ceaseless comings and goings of priest, deacon, subdeacon, cantor, commentator. The priest himself becomes a commentator, constantly encouraged to explain what he is about to do. Of lectors, men and women, of servers or laymen, welcoming people at the door and escorting them to their place, while others carry and sort offerings. And in an era of frenzy for a return to Scripture, we now find, in contradiction of both the Old Testament and St. Paul, the presence of a suitable woman who, for the first time in the Church's history, is authorized to proclaim the Scripture readings and perform other ministries outside the sanctuary. Finally, there is the mania for concelebration, which will ultimately destroy the priest's Eucharistic piety by overshadowing the central figure of Christ, sole priest and victim, by dissolving him in the collective presence of concelebrants. Chapter 6. The Destruction of Unity We have limited ourselves above to a short study of the Novus Ordo, where it deviates most seriously from the theology of the Catholic Mass. Our observations touch upon deviations which are typical. To prepare a complete study of all the pitfalls, dangers, and psychologically and spiritually destructive elements that the New Rite contains, whether in texts, rubrics, or instructions, would be a vast undertaking. We have taken no more than a passing glance at the three new Eucharistic prayers, since they have already come in for repeated and authoritative criticism. The second gave immediate scandal to the faithful due to its brevity. Of Eucharistic prayer, too, it has well been said that a priest who no longer believed in either transubstantiation or the sacrificial character of the Mass could recite it with perfect tranquility of conscience, and that a Protestant minister moreover, could use it in his own celebrations as well. The new Missal was introduced in Rome as an abundant resource for pastoral work, as a text more pastoral than juridical, which national bishops' conferences could adapt, according to circumstances, to the spirit of different peoples. 
Section 1 of the New Congregation for Divine Worship, moreover, will now be responsible for the publication and constant revision of liturgical books. This idea was echoed recently in the official newsletter of the Liturgical Institutes of Germany, Switzerland, and Austria. The Latin text must now be translated into the languages of different nations. The Roman style must be adapted to the individuality of each local church. That which was conceived a timeless state must now be transposed into the changing context of concrete situations and into the constant flux of the universal church and its myriad congregations. The Apostolic Constitution itself in promulgating the Novus Ordo Missae deals a death blow to the church's universal language. When contrary to the express wish of the Second Vatican Council, it unequivocally states that in great diversity of languages, one and the same prayer will ascend more fragrant than incense. The demise of Latin may therefore be taken for granted. Gregorian chant, which Vatican II recognized as a distinctive characteristic of the Roman liturgy, decreeing that it be given pride of place in the liturgical services, will logically follow. Given, among other things, the freedom of choice permitted in choosing texts for the introit and the gradual. From the outset, therefore, the new rite was pluralistic and experimental, bound to time and place. Since unity of worship has been shattered once and for all, what basis will exist for the unity of the faith which accompanied it, and which, we were told, was always to be defended without compromise? It is obvious that the new order of Mass has no intention of presenting the faith taught by the Council of Trent. But it is to this faith that the Catholic conscience is bound forever. Thus, with the promulgation of the new order of the Mass, the true Catholic is faced with a tragic need to choose. Chapter 7. The Alienation of the Orthodox The Apostolic Constitution explicitly mentions the riches of piety and doctrine the Novus Ordo supposedly borrows from the Eastern Churches. But the result is so removed from, and indeed opposed to, the spirit of the Eastern liturgies, that it can only leave the faithful and those rites revolted and horrified. What do these ecumenical borrowings amount to? Basically, to introducing multiple texts for the Eucharistic prayer, the anaphora, none of which approaches the Eastern counterpart's complexity or beauty, and to permitting the communion under both species and the use of deacons. Again, this, the new order of Mass, appears to have been deliberately shorn of every element where the Roman liturgy came closest to the Eastern rites. At the same time, by abandoning his unmistakable and immemorial Roman character, the Novus Ordo cast off what was spiritually precious of its own. In place of this are elements which bring the new rite closer to certain Protestant liturgies, not even those closest to Catholicism. At the same time, these new elements degrade the Roman liturgy and further alienate it from the East, as did the reforms which preceded the Novus Ordo. In compensation, the new liturgy will delight all those groups hovering on the verge of apostasy, who, during a spiritual crisis without precedent, now wreak havoc at poisoning her organism by undermining her unity in doctrine, worship, morals, and discipline. Chapter 8. The Abandonment of Defenses St. Pius V had the Roman Missal drawn up, as the present apostolic constitution now recalls, as an instrument of unity among Catholics. In conformity with the injunctions of the Council of Trent, the Missal was to exclude all dangers, either to liturgical worship or to the faith itself. Then threatened by the Protestant revolt, the grave situation fully justified, and even rendered prophetic, the saintly pontiff's solemn warning given in 1570 at the end of the bull promulgating his missal. Should anyone presume to tamper with this, let him know that, she, that he shall incur the wrath of God Almighty and his holy apostles Peter and Paul. When the Novus Ordo was presented at the Vatican press office, it was imprudently asserted that conditions which prompted the decrees of the Council of Trent no longer exist. 
Not only do these decrees still apply today, but conditions now are infinitely worse. It was precisely to repel the, those snares which in every age threatened the pure deposit of faith that the church, under divine inspiration, set up dogmatic definitions and doctrinal pronouncements as her defenses. These, in turn, immediately influenced her worship, which became the most complete monument to her faith. Trying to return this worship to the practice of Christian antiquity and recreating artificially the original spontaneity of ancient times is to engage in that unhealthy archaeologicalism Pius XII so roundly condemned. It is, moreover, to dismantle all the theological ramparts erected for the protection of the right, to take away all the beauty which enriched it for centuries, and all this at one for the most critical moments, if not the most critical moment, in the Church's history. Today, division and schism are officially acknowledged to exist not only outside the Church, but within her as well. The Church's unity is not only threatened, but has already been tragically compromised. Errors against the faith are not merely insinuated, but are, as has been likewise acknowledged, now forcibly imposed through liturgical abuses and aberrations. To abandon a liturgical tradition which for four centuries stood as a sign and pledge of unity in worship, and to replace it with another liturgy which, due to countless liberties is impl it implicitly authorizes, cannot be a sign of division. A liturgy which teems with insinuations or manifest errors against the integrity of the Catholic faith is, we feel bound and conscious to proclaim, an incalculable error. Signed on Corpus Domini, 5th of June, 1969.